occasionally jumping into the book of Hebrews, um, there's a very specific theme that we've been hitting, um, and that theme is what? Does anyone remember the theme through the book of Hebrews? What's been kind of our base understanding book of Hebrews? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Um, and so what a wonderfully appropriate song, right? What a powerful name, what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. Nothing can stand against it. Jesus is better. And so as we uh, step in here to chapter number 12 tonight, I'll start with this question. How many of you have ever felt out of place? Ever felt out of place? All right, about half of us. Okay. Um, but the other half of you, I don't know what's going on with you. Uh, maybe they felt out of place if they raised their hands, right? I don't know. Um, yeah, wow. We've all felt that way, right? Uh, maybe you can remember, maybe you had anxiety as a kid and you, uh, you know, that first day at a new school or uh, first day at a new job sometimes, right? Can feel a little weird. Um, Sometimes, um, I know there are faces in here that you're newer to our church, and so first time at a, at a church, it can be an overwhelming thing, because even though we want you here, and you're welcome here, and we are so excited to get to know you, you know, the devil puts those thoughts in your minds, and our, our insecurities play with our minds, and all of a sudden, we feel out of place, right? And then there may be a time that you really are out of place, uh, you walk into the wrong room, you, uh, you, you don't know where you are, you're kind of walking, you're somewhere that you're, you're not where you belong. Uh, the church and the believers that are receiving this book of Hebrews, they are people that are out of place. Um, they are people that in many ways don't belong. Understand that as, we're, as we look at this book, as we look at these people, um, we see a lot of warnings about drifting. We see threats, warnings of threats to their faith. We see warnings of difficult times. We see warnings of persecution, heresy, but uh, hardships coming from both inside and outside of the bodies of believers. We see this group that's receiving this book. They are a marginalized minority. Um, they don't live in what we would, in any stretch of the imagination, consider a Christian culture. Rather, they find themselves uh, within, in one sense, being written to Hebrews, they find themselves within Judaism. But in another sense, an even greater sense, we find them within the polytheistic Greco-Roman culture. And this is uh, uh, really the foundation of today what we know as humanism, what we know as secularism. Back in this day, it was manifesting itself in polytheism. The philosophers were uh, very well-known and very well-respected but they worship just this plethora of gods and goddesses. It's said that in the city of Athens, a great cultural hub of this time, that it was easier to run into a god on the streets than a man. There was so many idols within this city, it's believed that there were, literally speaking, more idolatrous false gods than people in the city. How fascinating is that? Like, how mind-blowing is that? And all of these gods... Served a different purpose, served a different function. And this is the culture wherein Christianity, these first century believers, are finding themselves. And really kind of the, the context of the day, the theme of the day, was something like you can have your own God as long as your God doesn't offend my God. Does that sound in any way familiar? We live in a day uh, of what many people want to describe as secularism, but in reality, uh, it's, it's its own form of kind of polytheism, where we worship all of these things that aren't really in any sufficient way gods. 
And so very similar to what these believers are experiencing here. And because of all of these things going on in the outside, because their culture is so diametrically opposed to Scripture, to the cross of Christ, to Jesus and his coming, they find themselves on the outside. They find themselves walking through difficulties, facing persecution, being marginalized. And so as we look here in chapter number 12 of Hebrews, this is really a continuation of this whole book. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews, really it plays out and it reads, it probably was originally a sermon, okay? In case you thought I was long-winded, it's a sermon, all right? 13 chapters long. Um, If you'd rather read that whole thing instead, then that's fine, it's fair, it's the word of God, so. Um, But it's definitely a lot happening here in this passage, right? I mean, a lot taking place in this sermon that we're looking at here in the book of Hebrews. But as we come to chapter 12, really, uh, the structure of the book is such that chapters 1 through uh, 9, really first half of 10, um, are all about who Jesus is. Building this case that Jesus is better than any other idol, any other god, any other religious system, and it's directly comparing this to Judaism and saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. Jesus is better than all of these things. We hit chapter 10, all of a sudden there's kind of a turn where uh, the author says, because Jesus is better, these things are true. This is how we should respond. And so chapter 10 gives us what we call the let us statements. And we learn how the gospel frees us into service. Does it force us into service? It frees us into service. We look at chapter number 11 and we see the faith that God calls us to. We see how that faith is described and defined. We see examples of that faith. But then at the end of the chapter, uh, if you've read the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 11, it doesn't leave us with Abraham and it doesn't leave us with Moses and it doesn't leave us with uh, Joshua and all these people that just had these huge, great victories. Rather, the author leaves us with people um, who were torn asunder, who were afflicted, who wandered about in hills and in deserts, poor and destitute and naked. Instead of leaving us on the mountaintop, what does it do? He, He leaves us in the valley. And he describes this group of people that had suffered for the name of Jesus and the cause of Christ. And so now as he comes into chapter 12, What we're going to look at tonight is very simply this. Don't quit. Don't quit. We live in a day and age that uh, there are many in our culture that would love for uh, churches like ours to quit. We find secularism and humanism on the rise. We find professors tearing down belief systems at publicly funded universities. We find people uh, all all over the news. We see attacks from every side. Uh, against primary core beliefs of our faith. And in fact, uh, we see an increasing secularization of our culture. But here, the, the author of Hebrews doesn't say worry. He doesn't say fret. He doesn't say panic. He doesn't say run and hide. What does he say? He says, don't quit. Don't quit. And so as we step into this chapter tonight, The question that we need to be asking ourselves and the question that we're going to approach this text with is how do we endure in difficult days? How do we endure in difficult days? Let's look at verses 1 through 3 as we begin tonight. The Bible says this, wherefore, so that word wherefore, um, really cheesy phrase but really uh, appropriate when you see the word wherefore or therefore, you need to look back and see what it's 
therefore, okay, ha, 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 all right. So this is saying, remembering everything you just read about, because all of these things are true, because the people of God have, in many ways, been a persecuted people, been a people that have uh, suffered for their faith, and their faith has led them directly into the path of suffering because of these things, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Tonight, you are all runners in a race. Tonight, we are all runners in a race. As we approach this text, we're going to look at three factors that will define our race. Let's pray before we jump into the word. Father, we are grateful that we can come here today. Father, we are grateful that you encourage us even in the middle of difficult times. And Father, even now, I know there are some in this room that are facing difficult times in one way or another. Father, even in this room, I know there are many that we will face difficult days ahead. Lord, I don't know where our culture is going. I don't know where our nation is going. I don't know what it'll look like in 20, 30, 40 years. You have not given me that knowledge and understanding, but you have it. And Father, I know that you've called us to faithfulness. So Lord, tonight as we open up your word, I pray that you would help us to understand and to know that there can be a faith that is worth following even in hard times. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide us and work in our hearts tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first major factor that we're going to jump in here tonight in our race is this. It's the runner's motivation. The runner's motivation. As we get into the text, what do we see first and foremost? We see seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Remember this passage that we have just read, those were just highlights of this great cloud of witnesses. There are many that reading this knew of those who had gone on before, those that had, those that had practiced their faith and carried their faith with them to their, to their, many of them to their graves, whether it be by persecution, whether it be by age, whatever it may be, they carried their faith with them through their lives. And now as they look around, he's kind of describing the scene almost like you're in a large stadium. So imagine that you're going to uh, you're going to a football game or a baseball game, and you see this this crowd of people. Eventually, what happens when you're in a big enough crowd, a big enough stadium, everyone just kind of blends together, right? You don't look uh, across um, a stadium like Ford Field or like Michigan Stadium or the Shoe. You don't look across the field and say, oh, I know that guy, right? No, there is speck on the wall because there are thousands, tens of thousands of people gathered together for this. And that's the picture that he's painting. Uh, imagine yourself back at an ancient uh, Olympic Games where those would be lined up around stadiums. They would be watching these participants. So he's saying, imagine yourself, you're walking in, there's such a great cloud of witnesses to observe your race. As we step onto the field, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And it's important for us here to see this, this as a distinction, okay? It doesn't say the weight which is the sin. It says the weight and the sin. These are two things that both are applicable, but are not both uh, the same thing. So the weight and the sin. 
And this is important as we're going to get into because weight and sin are both things that we need to lay aside. There are times in our lives where maybe uh, many times as Christians we can do this, can't we? It's not sinful, is it? I don't have to let go of this because it's not sinful. I don't have to not do this because what the Bible doesn't say where I have to. But oftentimes in these things, what can they become? They can become obsessions. They can become things that consume our time. And instead of giving to a better thing, we're giving to these other things. What are those? Those are what we may call weights. Let me give you, let me give you an example of, of a, 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 what a weight would look like if we were to take this and compare this into the uh, Olympics. To the best of my knowledge, um, an Olympic swimmer would be allowed to wear uh, a sweatshirt and jeans to compete in their event. How many of you think that's wise for an Olympic swimmer to wear a sweatshirt and jeans jumping into the pool, right? Michael Phelps, I don't think has any intention of, I mean, why not? It's going to weigh them down, right? All of a sudden, it's going to take on water. It's going to, you don't see anybody that's dressed like that. No, they're dressed to compete. Um, if you were to turn on a marathon, if you were to watch the Boston Marathon or whatever it may be, uh, do you see any runners dragging a five-gallon bucket behind them? Wouldn't that be amusing? Little red wagon and a five-gallon bucket of water trotting along, right? We don't see that. Is water a bad thing? Is water something that's, un that's uh, unnecessary for those competing in that event? No, it's very necessary. But at the same time, it's a weight. So rather, what do they do? Checkpoints along the race. People are handing them cups of water that they can replenish themselves. Understand that God understands our needs. God knows where we are going. And God provides for us along the path. His goal for us, his desire for us, is not to be weighed down with the cares and with the things of this world. Because those things only limit us from running our race. Those things only attach us to the material. And so as we see this, we're called to lay aside the weight. We're called to remember the witnesses. And there's a reason for this. Watch this. Let us run with patience or with endurance the race that is set before us. This word uh, race that's used here is fascinating, um, to me at least, okay? Uh, this word race here, the Greek word for this is agon. Agon. Does it sound like anything to anybody? English word? What is that? I heard it. Agony. Agony. Let us run with patience the agony that's set before us. How many of you are encouraged tonight? Yes, the agony. Bring it on. It's where we get the Greek, that's the, where we get our English word for. Uh, it means a fight. You say, well, run the fight. That doesn't make any sense. No, here's, here's what it's probably describing. Um, there was a specific event in Greek culture called the pentathlon. Um, it would be similar in some respects to um, our triathlon today, um, or maybe a decathlon. Um, probably more like the triathlon where you're doing a few events, or specifically there are four events that they would compete in. And then the fifth event, once they run the first four events, um, the, the participants uh, would, put on, um, would put on like MMA-style gloves, and they would beat each other. All right? Anyone want to sign up for that one? I mean, it was a fight after all of this race. I mean, I don't know how entertaining that would be. Um, I've called the Olympic Committee. They're considering it. Um, it's, this is actually what they would participate in. And so as he's describing these things, he's saying, he's, he's implying here, if this is what he's referring to, the agon, all right, he's saying you have to run and you have to fight. 
Uh, this is not just a matter of outpacing someone else. This is a matter of hanging on for dear life, okay? This is an important thing that's taking place. And so he describes this race. And as he says all of these things, look at verse number two, because this is really where our, our motivation comes in. The witnesses, yes, they're there, they exist. They remind us of the call that we have. But, but look at verse number two, because this is really where our motivation comes in. Looking unto Jesus. So we see the witnesses, right? But do we look unto the witnesses? No. We see the witnesses and we look unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, the one who started it and the one who will finish it, will bring it to completion. And what do we see about him? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at that phrase right there. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. The cross was such a degrading, dehumanizing, uh, awful thing to endure. And yet he endured the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. Kind of begs the question, right? Because it's not uh, explicitly stated. What joy is worthy of that? What joy could he have been looking to to endure that? Was it some kind of omnipotence? Well, he already had that. Some kind of God? Well, he, had, he is God, so okay, no. Uh, the, I mean, the universe, I mean, he had that too. So what is it that he's calling, that the author here is calling the joy set before him? This is what that joy is. That joy is you. That joy is me. The joy is those that rejoice in him. The Bible tells us, gives us insight. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, watch this, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Psalm 147.11, The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him. And then that hope for his mercy. Romans 2.29, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. And the spirit, not the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Understand that God rejoices in you. Some days they're difficult, and some days they're discouraging. Understand this. God rejoices in you and in your faith. The joy that Jesus, that was set before him, was the joy of redeeming his people back to himself. The covering of our sin, the purchasing of us, rescuing us, bringing us back from the brokenness and the death that we deserve from sin. This is the joy that was set before him. And the fact is, is that, the, that God rejoices in you and in your faith. C.S. Lewis said it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, to please God, to be a real ingredient in divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Understand that just as an artist rejoices in his masterpiece, just as a father rejoices in his son, God delights in you. And this ought to be something that encourages us and motivates us because we are his joy. Uh, and understand this. So what is it about us that he joys in? Does he look at you and say, wow, you are so smart. Wow, you are so strong. 
We know it's not those things, right? We understand it's not those things because we lack those things, all right? Honest with each other, we lack those things. What is it then that he rejoices in? Here it is. Uh, Another author wrote this, uh, A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So what does God rejoice in us? How does God find joy in us? Here it is. God finds joy in us when we find joy in him. God finds joy in us when we find joy in him. This is, it's reciprocating. This is, this is both. God finds joy in us when we find joy in him. You see, God created you with a longing for him. God designed you knowing that you would not be fulfilled without him. But now, what does he tell us? He tells us we are accepted in the blood and that we are complete in him. That we are complete in Christ. And so you don't have to feel empty anymore. You don't have to feel insufficient and and incompetent and outcast anymore. Why? Because God delights in you. And he delights in you when you delight in him. Our joy, our peace, our motivation, our satisfaction is him. You know what's really interesting to me is that oftentimes when we read through, even when we read through the, the Psalms, um, speaking of the salvation of God, they don't first and, for, first and foremost emphasize the salvation of God. They emphasize the salvation of God. They emphasize the God of salvation. And what is uh, Psalm, he, David writes, Psalm 37, 4, he says, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Psalm 43, 4, God, my exceeding joy. Psalm 70, verse 4, says that all, may all who seek in you rejoice in you. Psalm 63, 3, says your steadfast love is better than life. And so God, he rejoices in us as we rejoice in him. And so if Jesus now, if we look at this and we see Jesus as an example for our motivation to go forward, if we see him and his joy in us, and we are called to have the same motive of joy, Jesus being our example, our motive now becomes more delight than duty. Our motive isn't, I must do this thing. Our motive is, God has given me opportunity to do this thing. Our motive is, God has freed me to do this thing. So not, but not only here is he an example of our joy, and it's important that we remember the joy that comes in following Jesus, the joy that comes in our salvation. Because understand, in difficult times, there are a lot of things that are coming to rob you of your joy. In hard days, there are a lot of things that are going to cloud your judgment and try to keep joy far from you. And if your joy is in anything, anything other than Christ, that joy is temporary. That joy is able to be corrupted. Understand that if your joy is in finances, listen, recessions happen, tragedies happen, things happen. Your finances are not assured by any stretch of the imagination. Understand this, that if your joy is in relationships, that relationships end. Relationships don't last forever. You might say, well, it's a spouse and they'll be faithful to me. Or it's my child. Listen, understand that people lose spouses and people lose children all the time. 
I'm not saying that to scare you or to panic you. I'm saying that for this reason. If our joy is in anything other than Christ, that joy is not a solid and a firm and an unmovable foundation. Because everything else, everything else can be taken away. But you know what cannot be taken away? God cannot be taken away from you, and you cannot be taken away from him. In fact, at the moment of your salvation, the Bible teaches us that Christ is in us, Christ is in you, and you are in the Father. You are found, you are sealed, you are set aside, you are set apart within him. There is nothing, there is no voice that comes from the outside or the inside that can change that truth. And so when our joy is found in Jesus, we can have joy even in the darkest times. Does that mean that uh, we're laughing through tragedy? No, but it means we have joy through tragedy. It means we have peace through tragedy. Because understand this, that our faith is not in this life. A faith that's in this life only is no faith at all. And so Jesus, as he is this example, even to the point of death, of pursuing the joy set before him, we need to remind ourselves that we are his joy and that we can joy in him. But not only is the motivation mentioned here in this passage, but we find this. Starting in verse 3, we really find this transition. We find the runner's discipline. The runner's discipline. Look at verse number 4 is where we first see this. The author says, You have not yet resisted unto blood. Remember agony, right? You've not yet resisted unto blood. He's implying that one day this point of resistance will come. Not yet resisted unto blood. Striving against sin. And as we do this, this requires, this requires discipline. Before we really press into this, I, I want to make sure that we understand um, and that we kind of uh, remove some common misconceptions about discipline. Because sometimes when we say discipline, we can think of um, with our child, they've done something wrong, right? So we discipline them. And yes, that can be an aspect of discipline. But sometimes I think there are three areas, actually, that we confuse sometimes um, when it comes to discipline. The first of these, those uh, being this, um, consequences. Consequences. There are three results to our actions. Um, the first of those being consequences. Now, consequences are a natural occurrence, okay? Um, so in our college group on Sunday, we talked about the story of David and Bathsheba. And if you're not familiar with the story, David, king of Israel, takes a woman named Bathsheba, and she, uh, he has an affair with her, um, and she becomes pregnant, all right? So is that, is that becoming pregnant? That's, that's not discipline. That's, that's nature, Okay. Uh, this is kind of, God says, we don't see if God's not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that will he also reap. A farmer goes out, plants crops on their land. All right, that's, that's nature doing its thing. There are certain times, if I were to come, uh, if I were to come down in here and uh, I were just to pick a fight with Joe Ball and he kicks my butt. Um, if I were to pick a fight with Joe, right? I mean, it's just supposed to be honest here. All right, if I were to pick a fight with Joe, right? Um, and then I'm like, I'm not going to apologize to that guy. He deserved it. He started it, right? It's going to cause some tension in our relationship, okay? And that's not him being punitive. That is me being an idiot is what it would be, right? That would be a consequence, a ruined relationship or a damaged relationship, right? If this happens, then this happens. If then, this is a consequence, right? So consequence is probably pretty familiar with. The second of those is this, uh, punishment or justice, Punishment or justice. And, and this is payback or retribution for something that's done wrong, okay? So if someone commits a crime, we would expect that our justice system would step up and require something of them for that crime, right? There would be something punitive that takes place. 
something uh, that justice demands to happen here, okay? So if I go out of here and I drive fast and Joe pulls me over, I'm just picking on you tonight. I'm just, um, you sit on the front row. It's your, I mean, no one <laughs> next week will be, next time I'll be in the back, you know? Uh, but let's say I go out of here, I speed, and some police officer says, not Joe, um, pulls me over, gives me a ticket, right? Uh, it's not necessarily a natural consequence, but it's a, uh, a justice thing, right? It's a punitive consequence. I deserve this thing, and so it is done. So there's punishments that happen, okay? And some of these may overlap in certain illustrations, and these things are different, but in the same kind of field. The final of these is discipline. Discipline. And this is what we're going to spend our time talking about. And this is what discipline is. Discipline is intervention for the purpose of molding character. Intervention for the purpose of molding character. So, uh, for example, um, it, it may be in response to wrongdoing, but it's not exclusively that. I'll give you some examples of those. Um, let's say, um, and, and I do, let's say that I have set a bedtime for my kids and they must be in bed at a certain time, okay? Is that because they did something wrong? Is that because they're little brats and they deserve to be stuck in their room for, no, right? No, it's because they need a bedtime. They need structure because I'm trying to teach them these things. Uh, if I, uh, there's another example, okay, and we're, we're in the thick of this with our two-year-old, right? Uh, potty training, okay? Is there anything sinful about a two-year-old using a diaper? No. Is it good for them if I don't try to get them not using a diaper? <laughs> no. I wanna help them. I want to mature them. I want to see my kids grow into the young people that God has designed them and built them to be. And so I discipline them by saying, hey, you need to go to bed at this time. Hey, it's time to eat. These are, just, these are some examples of discipline. Now, when they do wrong, they are corrected, right? But even in these instances, it's not because... I dislike them, and boom, you need to learn, you need to be punished for that thing. No, it's because I want to mold their character because I desire something better for them. And so this is how God approaches us. That's not the only example. Discipline would also be maybe a coach that makes players exercise, okay? So your, uh, your kid, or maybe you played sports, and you go out for your team, and your coach says, all right, guys, give me laps. And you're like, oh, coach, I didn't do anything wrong. It doesn't matter if you did anything wrong. You need a condition because you have to be able to play this sport. You need to be able to run and endure the game. He's disciplining his players for the purpose of this event. And these are really the two uh, metaphors here that the author uses for us. So he gives us these two perspectives on, on God's discipline. First, we see in verse number five, we see the father. He writes this, You've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, or faint when thou art rebuked of him. And so understand that parents, as we approach parenting, parents don't avenge their child's wrongdoing, right? You know, uh, if uh, my three-year-old um, knocks over her, if she just she accidentally knocks over a bowl of Cheerios, uh, you know what I you know what I don't do? How dare you spill your Cheerios? Vengeance is mine, saith the dad. Like, I don't oh, take the Cheerios and, like, rub her face in it and do something. I mean, you guys are like, man, he thinks some crazy things. Weird enough. Maybe he does. Like, that's not how it works, right? 
You know what happens when, when your kid uh, makes a mess, on, especially on accident, and it's innocent, and it happens, and uh, I'll tell you, my kids are like, ah, my food, okay, it's, they're my kid, they're like, my food. What do we do? We say, hey, we're going to get you some more. Just be careful. Hey, let's pick this up. Let's clean up this mess. And what do we do? We're molding character. We're saying that when something happens outside of our control, we make the best of it, right? I'm molding their character. And so in that moment, even if they're not going to be uh, disciplined in the sense that we might normally think of, what am I doing? I'm disciplining them. I'm molding their character within them. And this is how God approaches us as a father. That's one way. There's another way, verse number 11. He says this, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. How many of you guys, you guys feel that? Okay. Um, look at the rest of this verse, and that's going to make a lot more sense. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them, which are, watch this word, exercised thereby. That word exercise, that's a fantastic translation of this word. Because exercise, that word exercise in Greek, it's literally the word that we get gymnasium from. It means to do something, it means an athletic exercising, an exercising of our physical body is the picture that it's painting here. And so as we are exercised, think back, look at the beginning of this verse again. Now, no chastening for the present seems joyous, but grievous. You know what I think that's referring to? Exercising. (laughs) All right. It's this picture. What happens when we go to the gym? Okay. Uh, how many of you guys, how many of you guys at one time in your life or presently you, you exercise consistently, right? Okay. When you go to the gym, uh, when you use weights and when you do things like this, uh, what happens? Do you, how, how do you feel when you walk out of the gym? You break a foot. So bad, bad is the answer. Right? Hopefully not breaking feet, but hey, you know what? It happens, it happens, all right? Some of us do. Yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm just like, maybe I'm the one that, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, all right. So what happens? Under normal circumstances, nothing terribly tragic happening. Um, what happens? You go in there, and let's say, let's say you're working with weights especially. Um, how do you feel when you walk out of the gym? How do you feel at the end of leg day? You're sore and tired, right? Like part of you feels good that, you know, you did it, and you feel a sense of accomplishment, but part of you feels like curling up in bed and never moving again, Right? Is it just me? No, it's you too? Okay, please be you too. Um, like you feel like you feel it, right? No pain, no gains. Pain is weakness, leaving the body, right? No, this pain is your muscles rebuilding themselves and coming back and growing stronger as a result of this exercise. And so understand this, that as God disciplines us, he's doing a couple things. And we actually see both of these words play out in verse number six. You see, the, um, you see this, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And so that word chasteneth is referencing, that's talking about um, the discipline in a positive sense, that's saying, hey, we're going to move forward, almost like exercising. It's not a punishment, we're moving forward. That scourging is talking about when something wrong does happen, how God reacts to that, and how he removes that thing from our lives. And so what is God doing here? God, through these illustrations, he's working out how God is coming to us as a father, as a coach, as one who wants the best for us. And what he is doing is simultaneously this. He is taking the bad, the things that we need to get rid of in our life, and he is removing those things from our lives. 
If he were a fitness instructor, he'd be taking away the Twinkies, right? He's taking away the things that are going to set us back, taking away the things that are going to harm us. He's removing those from our lives, breaking down the idols, removing the things that we find our hearts drifting toward instead of to him. Because understand that if we're finding joy in anything else when hard times come, you're going to find yourself flat on your face because that joy is not going to satisfy if it's not joy in him. And so he's removing these things, and simultaneously he is building us up, and he is moving us forward, and he is growing us, and he is maturing us. And understand that we are not called to despise, to refuse, to look down on this discipline, but rather we are called to embrace this discipline. And you say, how, how is that even possible? Why would, why would I want to do this? And understand this. Understand this. Just because it's not your plan, just because it hurts, just because it's not your plan, doesn't mean it's not a good plan. Just because it's not your plan doesn't mean it's not a good plan. Another pastor said that, Pastor Greer from North Carolina, he says this, and I love this statement. Just because it's not your plan doesn't mean it's not a good plan. We all like our plans best, don't we? But God doesn't. God says, I know better than you do. God says, I know more than you do. I see further ahead than you do. I understand the purposes more than you do. And so just because it's not your plan doesn't mean it's not a good plan. So why does discipline matter? Why does discipline matter? Think of it this way. I want to illustrate this so we really have a firm grasp of this before we finish up tonight. Uh, What would you think of an undisciplined soldier? Imagine that you're out on the battlefield and you're engaged with the enemy. Um, I know there are a handful of people in here that had uh, served in the military. And so imagine that you are out on the field and, and you're beside someone who, for whatever reason, never had to complete boot camp. They're undisciplined. They don't know how to handle their weapon. Uh, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They're like, you know what? Hey, I'm really tired. I'm going to take a nap really quick. Just hold down the fort for a few minutes. I know we're in a firefight, but I just, I, I really need my 15 minutes, okay? Doesn't make any sense. They're just like, hey, can you show me how to use this thing? Excuse me? Like, if that's me, I'm like, all right, I, I surrender? Like, I'm, <laughs> we're done for, right? An undisciplined soldier doesn't make any sense. What about an undisciplined surgeon? What do you think of that? They come into your room and they're like, excuse me, uh, sir, is it the uh, right leg or the left leg that we're taking tomorrow? And you're like, I'm here for a colonoscopy. Um, <laughs> is there someone else around? Do you have a supervisor or somewhere? You know what, another hospital, I'll just, I'll just leave, right? We don't want an undisciplined surgeon. Uh, we don't want to watch undisciplined athletes. If I did, I would rewatch last week's Michigan game. All right? <sighs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Support group starting after service. Right, I mean, we don't want to watch undisciplined athletes. We want our teams, when they go out there, we want them to march out there. We want them to, be, to buckle up. We want them to get out there and take it to the other team. Right? We want discipline. We don't want to be disciplined. We want to watch people be disciplined, right? Uh, and so it doesn't make any sense. And here's, here's the thing. Catch, catch this, okay? This word, the word here that's used for uh, chastening and uh, the word here that we're calling discipline, uh, discipline and disciple come from the same root. A disciple is one who is disciplined. Christ calls us, God calls us to discipleship. He doesn't just call us to pray a prayer and to 
say some nice words, and come to church once or twice a week. He calls us to be committed followers of his. But if we are going to be disciples, discipleship requires discipline. An undisciplined disciple is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. It's like the tooth fairy, Santa Claus, whatever you may be. Everyone knows Santa? Not Santa Claus, bad example. All right. <laughs> An undisciplined disciple is not real. It's not a true thing. It's something that cannot, cannot, by definition, exist. But understand this, too. That discipline and discipleship does not mean bondage. It does not mean bondage. What, is, what it means is freedom. It means freedom. Uh, this, here, here's how I can illustrate this. A concert pianist, uh, I could not sit down over here and play a beautiful melody, okay? I'm not even going to try, okay, because you guys, everyone just get up and leave, all right? Nope, done with that, all right? You're not here for that. So uh, why can't I do that? Because I've never disciplined myself to play the piano, I've never sat down and made myself learn the principles required for piano playing. There are people in this room who can play the piano or who can play the guitar. They can do it. Why? All right. Can any our musicians in here, okay? Have any, did any of you just pick up an instrument and you just began playing it and you played it beautifully the first time you touched it? Anyone? Steven? Okay, all right. I'm just checking, all right. Uh, no, I see Roxanne shaking your head. I see, you know. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You have to discipline yourself. You have to push yourself to be able to gather these skills. A professional athlete must be disciplined. You and I cannot go up to Ford Field this weekend and step out on the gridiron, jump into a Lions uniform, and expect to be able to play. Why? Because we haven't disciplined ourselves. We haven't gone, we, the coach would be like, what are you doing? Get out of here. How did he get down here? Security, right? Get this guy off the field. Doesn't make any sense. We haven't disciplined ourselves for those things. Uh, we haven't put in the time. We haven't put in the effort, the energy required to be able to participate in that. And understand this. Discipline does not bring us into bondage. Discipline frees us to be able to accomplish the things that God has for us. And what is it, this thing that God has for us? Hebrews 12, verse number 10. Look at verse number 10. For they verily, for a few days, chastened us after their own pleasure. This is, uh, this is speaking of uh, our fathers. This is uh, um, how they saw good. They disciplined us. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his, what? Holiness. Why does God discipline us? Why does God allow us to walk through times that we don't like, that are difficult, that are hard, why does he let us step into those seasons? Holiness, godliness, to mold us and make us like him. That's the plan that God has for us. God's will for us is our sanctification, that we become like him. And so as God allows discipline into our life, it brings us to Christ-likeness. God removes from our hearts and from our lives those things which distract, those things which pull us back, and he adds to our lives those abilities, those senses, the understanding to be able to move forward and to be who he designed us to be. But not only do we see uh, these first two factors of our motivation and our discipline, uh, but we do see this, and we need to be so careful of this. The third factor is the runner's opposition. The runner's opposition. Look at verse number 12. 
He gives us some encouragement before he gets into this. He says, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. Verse 14. Follow peace with all men. Why does he have to warn us and encourage us to follow peace with all men? Because the first opponent that we're actually seeing is we're seeing the opponent of conflict. The opponent of conflict. This is when we're too busy fighting our allies to fight our enemies. This is when we're too busy uh, getting caught up and uh, this person said this to me, this person said that to me, uh, and stirring the pot, saying, I can't get along with so-and-so, I can't serve with so-and-so, I can't move forward with this person or that person because of this reason, this conflict that happens to us, uh, this is not God's design, but rather what are we called to do? We're called to follow peace. That word follow, you know what it means? It means seek after, stay on top of. It means this. It means when there's something that comes up, especially between believers, but really between anyone, when there's something that happens in our lives where a relationship is at odds, where something happens, whether you're the offender or the offendee, who should you, you, I've had people say, okay, who should make the first move in those things? Yes. Oh, so-and-so offended me. I'm waiting for them to come and apologize. Hey, listen, it sounds like, sounds to me like uh, you're dealing with this conflict too. Maybe, maybe there was a misunderstanding. Maybe there was any of these things that could have happened. Have you sought peace with them? Well, no. Seek peace. Because conflict, conflict is only going to set you behind in your race. Now watch what else. If we're supposed to follow peace with all men, what else are we supposed to follow? Holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. You want to see God? You want to see God work? Holiness. And so what's the opponent that we see here? It's worldliness. Worldliness is this. It's making peace with those who ought to be our enemies. Worldliness is when we go and we grab these ideals and we grab these philosophies that the world is trying to peddle us. And we go out there and we grab them, we attach them, and we say, you know what? This is fine. You know what? This, I, can, I can do this too. And really, I think that when people get away from God, this is what I've seen in my life, when people get away from God and when people walk away from their faith, when they quit on God, it's not something usually that just this boom, lightning bolt thing happens. They're like, you know what? I'm done. I'm out of here. No, it's a, it's a slow decline. It's a slow rot. But what happens, you know where this is coming from, is it comes from the influences that we're allowing into our lives. We have a, uh, I'm speaking of our culture in general today, uh, churches in general today, just my observation is that it seems like we have a very worldly uh, we have a lot of very worldly Christians. Uh, we have Christians that maybe we have the haircuts, and not that you have to have a haircut, I guess, because I'm kind of shaggy. So uh, maybe we have the, uh, you know, maybe, we, oh, they dress this way and they look this way and they talk this way, but uh, what we find is beneath the surface, we've bought into these lies. We've bought into these worldviews. We've bought into these things all over the place that, that, that these are lies that Satan has given to us, that Satan has fed us. And they sneak in. If we're not careful, they sneak in through our entertainment. They sneak in through, uh, through our TVs. They sneak in through uh, our, our cell phone. I didn't have my cell phone on me. I was like, a hey, cell phone. It's weird, okay, but I don't have it on me. Um, they, what do they do, though? We spend, we spend hours on the internet, social media, uh, browsing through blog articles. Oh, this thing, that thing. And all of a sudden, the culture has permeated our thinking. And if we're not careful, that's what takes place. I'm not saying run and hide from. I'm not saying... Take your TV and throw it out your door and run it over with your truck or whatever. I'm not saying that, okay? 
What I'm saying is this. Be careful what you're taking in. Be careful what you're taking in. Take those things. Be aware of the philosophies that we're getting from coworkers that don't seek after God. Be careful of the philosophies that we're getting from uh, the media, from uh, the talk shows, through whatever it might be. Be careful of the things that you're taking in because so often the slow rot takes place and then we have Christians that look exactly like non-Christians. And in fact, we're called not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. And say, listen, this is really important. I want you to catch this. The transforming, it doesn't say be transformed by the renewing of your clothes and your look and the words that you use. What does it say? This is Romans chapter number 12. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Corinthians, Paul challenges them. He says to, uh, to take all thoughts into subjection to Christ. Understand this, our battle is not a battle of flesh and blood and externals. Our battle is a battle against principalities, against powers, against things that sneak into and take captive our thoughts and lead us away from, lead our affections away from God. So how can we replace those things? We replace them with the scriptures. Reading, studying the word of God, memorizing scripture, by reading good books, by gathering in community like tonight, finding a smaller group within our church to engage in and to be a part in and to keep yourself accountable within. You know, one of the best tools for me, just practically speaking, one of the best tools for me is I love podcasts. I listen to, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I, I, listen to, I listen to preaching podcasts. I listen to some non-Christian podcasts, but I listen to a lot of preaching podcasts. I listen to podcasts of people studying the Bible or talking about Christian things. Those have helped my spiritual growth immensely. And they're free. <gasps> All right. The thing is, the resources are out there. We say, oh, well, I have to be doing something. Well, if we have to be doing something, we might as well be doing something productive. We might as well be doing something godly. Did you know the Bible app on your phone has an audio version? If you download the Bible app, there's an audio version. You can listen to the Bible while you're driving in your car for free. (gasps) Is that amazing? Oh, it's wonderful. I I love when I'm studying through passages of Scripture, you know what I'll do? I'll play it on the audio. I'll... While I'm driving, I'll listen to, oh, oh, I didn't catch that when I was reading through it. Hmm, and meditating on scripture instead of taking in other influences. We have to be very careful about the influences that we allow. And when we allow influences outside of this, we have to understand that we're allowing those influences knowing that there may be something in there that was trying to draw our affections and our attentions away from Christ. Look at verse number 15. This is the last of those enemies here, the opposition looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness, I'm sorry, there's two more. Go ahead this one really quickly and go to the last one. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, thereby many be defiled. You know what we see here? We see bitterness. Bitterness. This is when we're too upset with our allies to fight our enemies. Uh, when we, this wells up inside of us, well, we let our minds be consumed. Really what this bitterness is, is when we let our minds be consumed with anything other than God. Because when our mind is so consumed about how that person offended me and that person did this and my sensibilities are hurt and I am no longer effective for the cause of Christ, you know what I'm saying is I'm saying that my opinion in this matter is more important than the work that God has called me to do. All of a sudden, you know what we're identifying? When there's bitterness, there's an idol. Every time, when there's bitterness, there's an idol. Something in our heart is set up that is dominating and taking over our minds when our affections and our thoughts ought to be on Christ. 
And so how do we fix that? How do we solve that? We have to identify those idols. We have to ask these questions, what, what upsets us? What makes us jealous? What makes us envious? And we have to look at those things and target those things. We have to tear them down because you will not run an effective race when you're battling bitterness. Look at verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. You know what he's describing here as he says fornicator, profane person? He's describing sensuality. Sensuality. And this is not just a sexual thing. This is anyone who is obsessed and focused on today, so focused on today that they don't prepare for the fight tomorrow. Because Esau, when we look at Esau as an illustration here, did, did Esau, there, there, there's nothing uh, that we would say in that the secularized, sensual term, right? There's nothing about that. What does he do? He He's the firstborn, and so the birthright is his by right. And he comes in from the field, and his brother is making food. And he says, hey, give me some of that. I'm going to die. And his brother says, you know what? I'll trade you your birthright for it. And what does Esau do? Esau says, birthright. What good is that going to do me if I'm dead? Give it to me. And he trades his birthright for this food. He, he says, I don't care about tomorrow. I want today. I don't care about what the future holds. I want here and now. And so what this is describing is this is describing a sensual culture a sensate culture, a culture that is dominated by the things we can touch, the things we can see, the things we can hear. The, uh, our culture, uh, we have to understand, we are so overgrown with this idea that if I can't see it, touch it, feel it, taste it, if I can't sense it, then it's not valuable. Understand this, faith requires something that cannot be touched or seen. We follow after an invisible God. Are there evidences for God? Yes, but you're not going to feel him with your hands and see him with your eyes quite yet. Someday we will, when that faith is made sight, but today you're not. We're called to walk by this faith. And so we have to reject even this notion that our culture, the only valuable things in it are those that can be touched and seen and felt. That's not, that's not what God's word declares to be true. We have to say, we're not going to be like Esau and trade in tomorrow's blessings and tomorrow's treasures for today's wants and greeds. And so we find these things are opponents, opponents to these things. How do we solve that? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. He'll solve our taste. And so he'll change our taste. He'll give us this desire for himself. But my friends, as we live in a day, a difficult age, let me encourage you, don't quit. Don't quit. As we see these things, as we look at these things, these are essential for running this race and living in a difficult day. Essential for Christian work and Christian ministry and Christian movement in a day that is secularized, that is pluralized, that is taking all of God out of society. These things are necessary. We have to look to Jesus, who is our motivation. We have to understand that the discipline that God has placed on us is a discipline that is for our good and for his glory, even if we don't see the fruit of it in this life. And we have to understand that there are opponents that are trying to trip us up as we're making our way. Way along because ultimately, if we endure, look what's waiting for us. Verse 22. But you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to the to God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. That's what we have waiting for us. That's the finish line that we're looking for. 
That list is incredible. We see God. We see, uh, we see heaven that we long for. We see this assembly of the church. We see the angels. We see the spirits of just men made perfect. These are those who have uh, gone before us, those who have had faith in Christ that are there before us, the loved ones, the heroes that we look to. These are them that we will one day see once again. And then we see at the end here, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the blood of the sprinkling, the blood that he shed for for us. One day we will see it. One day we will know it. One day it will not just be a faith in the unseen. We'll all of a sudden have a faith and a knowledge and understanding of the seen. One day our eyes will behold these things. And where does all of this take place? This takes place in the city of the living God, where the world feeds us and fuels us with insecurity. God, the city of God, it gives us safety. Where the world gives us brokenness, the city of God gives healing. Where the world gives us condemnation, the city of God promises forgiveness. When, when all of a sudden we look in a world that rejects us, when we find ourselves out of place, when we say, listen, I need to be home. I need a place that I can be. I need a place that I can belong. God says, come to me because one day we will be in the city of God and we won't be marginalized. We won't have to suffer rejection. Instead, we will experience true and final and real acceptance in the presence, in the joy of our God. This is the finish line that we're striving for. This is the, this is the thing. Oh, one day we'll be there. But there's one more enemy. There's one more enemy in verse number 25. We've heard all of these things. Remember the, the, this theme that we also sense in the book, God speaking, are you listening? God speaking, are you listening? Even verse 24, the blood of the sprinkling, it speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks. Don't refuse the God that's speaking. Don't refuse God as he's calling out to you. Don't be, here it is, inattentive to the voice of God. God is speaking. He's giving us a serious calling. Here's the question, are you listening? Are you listening And if you're listening, he calls us to himself. Understand, he says, take these things serious. Take these things. These things are not secondary things. These things are not B-level things. These things are not things to fit into the margins of our lives. This is the thing that we are called to. This is a serious thing. Because you know what it required God? Understand, God sent Jesus. This is such a serious thing. God gave his son. It was such a serious thing. And if we ignore him, if we make him secondary, uh, understand this. uh, Verse number 25, if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Understand, if you're sitting in here tonight and you say, you know what, I don't know anything about this Jesus guy. I don't want anything to do with this Jesus guy. Understand this. That is a very serious thing in the mind of God. That is a very serious thing in the mind of God. And understand this, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, that if we don't take seriously this call, that is also a serious thing in the sight of God. Understand that the things that we are discussing tonight, the things that we are talking about tonight, these are life and death things. These are things that we live in a world filled with people that are dying and that are going to be separated from God forever because of their sin. They find themselves in brokenness. They find their lives in shambles. They find sin consuming them. And and that's not a serious thing. There's something else more important. J.C. Ryle, man of faith, said this, God is serious in observing us. 
Christ is serious in his death for us. The Spirit is serious in striving with us. The truths of God are serious. Our spiritual enemies are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. Poor lost sinners are serious in hell. Why then should we not be serious too? Understand, we are working to save lives. We are working to save lives. Brothers, sisters, don't quit. Don't quit. Yes, we minister in a difficult age. Yes, we minister uh, to people that are, are hurting and that maybe don't even want help sometimes. Don't quit. Maybe the obstacles around us, they're just overwhelming. Don't quit. Whatever it is, whatever trial or temptation, whatever discipline is coming to your life, don't quit. Don't walk away. Don't despise those things. No. What that should call us to do is that should call us to buckle down, to stay firm, to, to find our rest, to find our motivation in Jesus. Because understand this, my friends, Jesus, he is better. He's better than anything that your heart can desire. He's better than any promise you've ever been told. He's better than anything else that you could ever hope for. Jesus is better. Don't quit. Don't quit. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are